Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Back before Donald Trump turned homelessness into a weird political hot button, I had wanted to do an episode on this with a, with a real expert. Uh, so I got in touch with Mary Cunningham from the Urban Institute. Then Trump did his thing. Uh, Mary came down. We had a really great conversation, not so much focused on, on the politics and the antics, but on what we really know about homelessness and what we can do to help. Uh, if you love housing, as I do, uh, this is a really great discussion of one of the most serious problems we face. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. My guest today is Mary Cunningham. She's a senior fellow and vice president at the Metropolitan Housing Community Center at the Urban Institute. That's a that's a lot of words. Uh, for, for our purposes, um, Mary is uh, uh, really uh, knowledgeable about homelessness and homelessness policy, a subject which, uh, when, when I originally scheduled this, I had intended to be uh, off the news mm-hmm. um, thing that I, that I just happen to think is important and interesting. Uh, uh, President Trump has sort of brought it into the news That's uh, right. with a report, but not to get too into the weeds because he he says things that don't make sense all the time. I, I actually like my broad impression as a person who's interested in housing, not that knowledgeable about homelessness, is that this is a situation that had been getting getting better for a while. That I used to always hear from progressive people, uh, like positive things about the Bush administration on homelessness, and that good results had continued under Obama. Uh, but now it seems like people are people are upset again. Is like is that right? Yeah, I think that is right. I th- just to take a look at the numbers, there are about 550,000 people who experience homelessness on any given night um, here in America. Um, That number has been going down about uh, 15% in the last decade. And that is largely because of real big shifts in practice and policy. And that work started with the Bush administration. Um, There was a lot of research that showed that not only do we have a solution, and that is supportive housing, um, but also that there was a small number of people who were taking up a lot of the resources in the homeless world, and that is chronically homeless people. So people who had been homeless for really long periods and repeatedly often have a disability, um, they were using a lot of the homeless resources. And not only using a lot of the homeless resources, but also moving in and out of jails, costing a lot of money with policing, um, moving in and out of detox, hospitals. And so some advocates took that evidence to the Bush administration and showed that 
not only is there this sort of really well-defined group that made up about 10 to 15 percent of the homeless population, but there was also a solution, and that solution was cost-effective. Okay. And I think that really resonated with the Bush administration. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, okay, so let's break down some some of this jargon, because I, sure. I, I think it's, it's suggestive, right? So a, a phrase you used, right, is people experience homelessness, mm-hmm. right? Which, in, in part, this is, like, I think progressives trying to use— be be conscious of of their language, but you also you draw a distinction that there are some people who are chronically homelessness, and then there are other people who, on any given day, mm-hmm. maybe not in a home, and and these are sort of distinct. Obviously, there's a link, but but these are distinct sorts of phenomena that that can happen to people. Yeah, I mean, I think we try to use people first language. You know, right. really want to describe homelessness as a condition or experience, not as a group of people, because we know. For the most part, that people move in and out of homelessness. Mm-hmm. It's not the homeless. It's people moving in and out of that experience. And some people may experience homelessness once due to an economic crisis. Um, they can't pay their rent. They miss the rent bill. They get evicted. Maybe they have some health conditions. Maybe they lost their job or they're going through a divorce and they experience homelessness. That's, you know, for the most part, most of the people who experience homelessness are uh, experiencing homelessness because of economic reasons. And so even though the number of people experiencing homelessness does not change that much from your, I mean, it changes, but similar, it's not the same people. That's right. I mean, there's a small group of people, people who experience chronic homelessness or chronically homeless people um, who really are experiencing it over the long term for more than a year or repeatedly. They're moving back in and out of homelessness. They're cycling in and out of jail. Um, and they usually have disability, um, serious mental illness, often co-occurring substance use disorders that make it really difficult for them um, to maintain housing. But we know from the research that it's not impossible. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think the Bush administration really figured out. And, you know, during the 80s, uh, during the 90s in New York City, for example, there was a lot of um, work to help get people off the street who are experiencing long-term homelessness into housing or really into shelter. But mm-hmm. at that time, there were a lot of hoops that you had to jump through or very high barriers that you had to pass. So you had to be sober. You had to have it, you know, be um, engaging in services and agree to service requirements. And and basically, that didn't work. Right. Um, so, so, so that thinking was, okay, we are willing to provide shelter to people, but we want you to show that this is like a, you know, this is like a, a, a deserving, undeserving, poor distinction that comes up all the time on this show. So, so the idea was to say, look, we, we can give you a place to stay, but you need to show us that you have done all these things XYZ, yep. to like, you know, get get off drugs, not be drinking. Uh, if you if you can't find a job, you have to do some kind of work fair type thing. And then we will say, OK, you are good enough to qualify for this. And in theory, that could have just like inspired everybody to get clean and sober. But in practice, no, it didn't. Right. In practice, it didn't work. And, you know, that was sort of what's known as housing readiness. Mm-hmm. And 
Um, there was a clinical psychologist named Sam Samberis who in the 90s in New York City decided, hey, this isn't working. This mm-hmm. housing readiness isn't working. I'm trying to get people to come into shelter. I'm offering something they, A, don't want. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm going to try something totally different mm-hmm. and started offering people an apartment with no conditions, saying, hey, come into housing. You don't have to get sober. You don't have to agree to any preconditions around service requirements. Just come in. And then we will help you stabilize and we'll provide you um, supportive services voluntarily. And that showed really amazing results in terms of really high rates of housing stability and also just housing people that generally people thought were unhousable. Hmm. Um, And I think that's that sort of revolutionized the way we think about how to approach homelessness. It's called housing first. Uh Um, And uh, that's what the Bush administration really invested in, said, we're going to end chronic homelessness. We're going to invest in supportive housing and housing first. And then the numbers started going down. Right. And so what what I think impressed people, particularly a, a Republican administration about this, is that as I understand it, it sounds a little perverse, like, yeah, just give them a house. Um, but it turns out that this is relatively inexpensive compared to sort of doing all the policing and 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 other things that were happening with, with people chronically on the street. Yeah. I mean, I would say it still costs money, right. for sure. Um, but Compared to some of the, it costs a lot to do nothing, right? So if you don't do anything, people are still using costly public services. They're, um, they have heavy policing costs. They are moving in and out of jail, hospitals, detox. These are costly emergency services. And so what some research showed, um, done by um, colleagues at the University of Pennsylvania, showed that basically this can be cost neutral. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what really resonated with the Bush administration. Right. I mean, you know, I mean, I think like a simple example is, you know, if you have people uh, in in the Northeast and, and Midwest, it, it gets very cold in the winter, mm-hmm. right? If people don't have a place to stay a certain number of the time, like they're going to be hypothermia. They're going to be in the emergency room all year round. It's a unhealthful way to be living. So you're going to be sick more. You're going to be using more medical services. And the preventative impacts of giving people a place to sleep right can be can be powerful even though it it costs money to get them an apartment it also costs money to do everything else that's right and not only um are people sick more because of exposure to living outside but People are also using those systems Mm -hmm. as housing. I was just in Alaska and Anchorage, and there's a very large visible homeless population there. And I was talking to service providers, and they were saying, you know, people are pretty resourceful. And they're, you know, thinking about how do I get into the hospital? How Mm -hmm. do I get into the jail? Because that's actually becomes the de facto housing uh, for people who are really vulnerable. Right. And so if you make it easier for people to sort of say yes to assistance on the basics of housing, then they do it. And then you can try to meet them, like literally meet them where they are That's right. with addiction, you know, services, whatever else. That's right. Engage them voluntarily and really provide them something that they need and want. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so this helped start bringing down homelessness numbers starting when? 
Um, I would say in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Um, and and basically, the, the actual data that we have really first available mm-hmm. was 2007. And then you see numbers, so late 2000s. Right. And then you see the numbers going down slowly. I think the other big investment, and this continued with the Obama administration, was really a focus on veterans, right? Mm-hmm. So I think um, it's very hard to say we don't want to have a commitment to veterans, right? We sure. want to f- um, really follow through, through on our obligations. And there was this general recognition that we have a lot of homeless veterans. And so the Obama administration and Congress really Mm -hmm. doubled down and made huge investments in supportive housing and homelessness prevention and rapid rehousing. And then you also see a very similar um, trajectory, which is as you make those housing-based investments homelessness among veterans goes down. And and homelessness among veterans is cut almost in half during now, that decade. Are veterans actually unusually likely to be homeless, or is it just that this is a, a population that has a sort of distinct service delivery mechanism and maybe a, you know, easier politics behind it? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's probably a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's, you know, there it's tricky because there's obviously a selection of who goes into the military. Sure. Um, so who may be vulnerable coming out? There's a little bit of selection bias there. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that there's a political um, support for sure. veterans. Like, who wants to be against veterans? I don't. Well, I've recommended this book before, but at Theda Scottswell's book, uh, Protecting Soldiers and mothers mm-hmm. about the sort of uh, political and social origins of the American welfare state, you know, it's very clear on this, right, that it's always, that, that veterans is always a population for whom mobilizing political support for social services is a little bit easier yeah. than than other people. That's right. And there is a whole social service delivery system as well through the VA, through, through medical benefits, homeless services. Um, I think that there's also... An opportunity here, which is to say that the work on veterans is a little bit of a proof point, which Mm -hmm. is if you invest in housing, then you can see the numbers of homelessness uh, going down. Right. So now, is homelessness, in fact, on the rise or is this just something President Trump, like, picked up randomly because he went to California one day? Yeah, I mean, I think so. As I mentioned, there are about 550,000 homeless people on any given night. The numbers were going down. In the last couple of years, they started to tick up. And that um, uptick has been in this unsheltered population. Mm-hmm. So people who are highly visible. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, I think, really drives the point home for people as you see tents, as you see people living on the sidewalks. Um, it just becomes a, it's a more publicly visible problem than it really has been, I think, since the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even in Washington, you can see people under the K Street Bridge all around, and it's just more visible um, uh, problem. Yeah, I mean, that's also my, you know, this is the kind of thing, like, you know, this is not uh, data, but I, I've lived here since 2003, mm-hmm. and I started coming here a, a few years earlier than that, and and my impression is that I see more tents, more, um, you know, more people on the streets than I did 10 years ago, but that it, it reminds me of what I saw when I visited when I was in, in college in the in the early 2000s. Um, but of course, that's, that's an important distinction, right? Sheltered versus unsheltered, because, uh, you know, people, uh, I think, would probably rather have like a, a permanent place to live. Uh, for the mass public, though, it's like w- what you see matters a lot. And so what 
what is driving this? I mean, the the folk wisdom, uh, at least when uh, I was being raised by by liberals in, in New York in the 80s, was that we were seeing more people on the streets because of disinvestment in mental health services and, and deinstitutionalization. Um, is there something that's like happened now that has this driving back up? Yeah. And I mean, I certainly think that the um, supports in the safety net and mental health system are are really important and an important part of the puzzle. Um, But generally speaking, um, homelessness is fundamentally a housing problem Mm -hmm. and more specifically a lack of affordable housing. Mm -hmm. You know, we have a housing market that doesn't produce enough housing units for um, the poorest among us and probably never will because it doesn't make economic sense for housing developers. It Uh just doesn't pencil out um, when you look at the numbers. And so in order to make sure that we don't have homelessness, that we don't have a lot of housing insecurity, um, we really need government intervention. And that is in the form of housing assistance, housing subsidies, housing vouchers. Right. But I mean, but th- but that's sort of what puzzles me about it because we have not fully and adequately funded housing vouchers like forever, right? So if you go back to 2014, you could, I mean, you know, I've written pieces like we, we should do more about this. Um, housing production, uh, it seems to me that hasn't fundamentally changed in the past couple of years. So, like, what 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 accounts for the for the delta here? Yeah, I think that's right. This is a long term crisis. I'm using air quotes uh-huh. here, right? It's been you know long uh, time disinvestment in our housing, our affordable housing. Um, I think what you're seeing here is there are some communities that are making progress, actually, mm-hmm. where the numbers are going down. Okay. And then there are some places where the numbers are going up, mm-hmm. like D.C. and, you know, a lot of big cities, um, and they're really struggling. And that so there's sort of this balancing where it looks like the national numbers aren't really changing much. There's places where it's going down. There's places where it's going up. Those are usually very high-cost markets. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what's happening. Right. That makes sense. Okay, so let's take a break, and then I want to start talking about some of those high-cost markets. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. 
So I was recently in Seattle uh, where they have seen, I think, a, a large increase in, in unsheltered homelessness. And something people say there and that people tell me every time I go to the West Coast is that the problem is that these cities have mild climates and sort of liberal politics. And so they act as a sort of a, a magnet that, you know, if you are going to be forced to, to live on the streets, you would rather do that in Los Angeles uh, or, or I don't know. Well, you'd rather do it in Seattle than in Chicago, right, is, is sort of what, what the theory comes down to. Is, is there anything yeah, to I that? I hear that theory all the time. People say to me, if I were homeless, I would move to Florida or I would move to California. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't think the data really bear that out. I mean, I do think there is some mobility, right? It's Mm -hmm. normal mobility that people do move around um, and people do seek services. And there may be places where there are more that are more rich in services, um, where maybe living on the street is a little bit more tolerable. But like take, for example, San Francisco, most of the people who experience homelessness actually grew up in, you know, in the San Francisco area. Um, And the data shows that there they when um, the city does their annual point in time data, they actually ask people, where did you first experience homelessness? And a majority of the folks are saying here. Um, So I don't think the data really bear that out. Right. So the other theory is that what's happening is that a lot of people are moving to Seattle and San Francisco and Los Angeles because those are nice places to live. Not not people experiencing homelessness, but people getting jobs in the thriving, growing economies, and that this is making houses there more expensive. Yes, and... I subscribe to that theory. <laughs> right. Uh, this this is the the correct theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, so, th- but what this means, like, it's it's generally, like, good, right? Like, if you go to Seattle, there's a lot of stuff there. A lot of people have come there. It's wages are relatively high, mm-hmm. but housing costs are also high. And so if you happen to not have gotten a highly paid job at Microsoft or Amazon, you now have a problem. That's right. I mean, I think those cities that are, you know, have booming economies need to really think intentionally about how to share that prosperity Mm -hmm. across all of the people who are living there. Um, And, you know, part of that is having comprehensive affordable housing plans um, and really um, being intentional and investing in housing. But the the challenge is is that um, in places uh, on up and down the West Coast and really across the country, Mm -hmm. we just have not invested in affordable housing for a really long time. There's been demand and supply is not kept up with the demand. And so, you know, to catch up is really difficult. Right. And this is why I think people find it like micro paradoxical that you have these problems intensify among prosperity, but it's like actually quite directly linked, right? It's like when an economy does well, Average wages go up, average prices of land go up, but some people fall below that average line. And unless you do things to, like, make sure that you are um, building stuff and giving money to the people who need it, like, this is what's going to happen. That's right. And, and you know, one of the the, the things that you, you see is often people look – it seems to me th- there's a tendency in these these cities to look a lot at, like, percentages. So they'll say, like, well, this is good. Like, we got this project and it was 20 percent subsidized or something. But you also have to look at just, like, quantities, right? Like, it, 
it doesn't if you have like one building and it's 20 percent subsidized housing like that doesn't help people like you need you need a lot like what's what's the the like what what kind of magnitudes are we talking about uh pretty big actually so yeah. california to close the gap on affordability it's 1.4 million units um so yeah there's a long way to go and you know not only does it take time to build and mm-hmm. produce affordable housing um so you may need some housing subsidies where people can take their housing subsidy they can move around the private market mm-hmm. and they can rent from a landlord. You've got to make sure those landlords are accepting housing vouchers. I could talk more about some of the challenges there. Um, But you also need to be producing units and preserving units. So there's a recent report from Harvard that just uh, was released about what naturally occurring um, affordable units. And so there's always a small share of your sort of aging stock um, that's affordable. You want to make sure that that is not going offline and that's staying affordable. So you have to be doing all of it. You have to be producing, preserving, and also protecting tenant rights. Right. Um, and so it's an all of above situation. And I think the challenge that um, we haven't really worked through and that we need a better playbook on is really NIMBY. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, we can invest a ton of money and LA has certainly through sales tax, property tax, um, bonds, uh, raising money that, um, you know, there's money pouring into these uh, these cities and, and often because citizens have voted that they want want to do mm-hmm. something, but they're not willing to say, okay, we'll have this affordable uh, housing development in my neighborhood or in um, a shelter in my neighborhood. It often is met with um, just tremendous uh, opposition. Right. So you can say, okay, well, we're going to fund uh, affordable housing construction. You can say we're going to fund shelters, uh, but you have to, it has to go somewhere, right? And like we've seen in in Washington, the mayor had an initiative to create, I think, both more shelter beds uh, in total, but also to have more facilities. And her idea, which, you know, from a technocratic perspective makes a lot of sense, was that you should spread them evenly across the city rather than having some like den of social dysfunction somewhere. Uh, But it has been very challenging to get neighborhoods to agree uh, that there should be these services in their city uh, to say nothing of getting neighborhoods to agree that just like in general, there should be apartments built. That's right. And I think the city, people who are in charge of that initiative would say that challenging is an understatement. <laughs> um, but yeah, you have to cite, you have to both cite affordable housing places and there's a lot of opposition and you have to cite shelters pl- places. Um, we need both temporary and affordable housing. And I think that um, one of the things communities are struggling with is like how, getting it right. Also the balance, like you mm-hmm. don't want to spend all your time building shelters because it's a temporary solution. It doesn't really solve the problem. They fell up and then you need more. Right. You really have to invest in the development of affordable housing so that you can actually solve the problem. Well, and this is important, right? Because I think a lot of people have a sort of mistaken impression that there is like a discrete population, right? Like the homeless, and that you maybe need to uh, like like shelter them someplace as a humanitarian gesture or as a toughness gesture, right? But the reality is that it's people exist on a, a, a sort of continuum of housing instability, right? And so if you have growing affordability problems, like systematic affordability problems, you will just have more people experiencing homelessness. And you need to address the sort of broad housing need on some level, even as you, you know, if there's people like experiencing acute problems, like you want to help them. But like the the issue is that houses are expensive. 
Yeah, and I think of sort of the homeless system as the sort of emergency room, right? Mm -hmm. People are in a crisis, they need help, they need a short-term place to stay, and the homeless system is there for them to work through that emergency. And then the broader affordable housing um, is really, you know, the healthcare system and making sure people get what they need in terms of their health, um, in terms of their housing needs. Um, and, you know, if you look closely at the L.A. data, which I think is ground zero for homelessness in California, it's about 60,000 homeless people. About half of them are unsheltered. Mm-hmm. Um, you can see that the city is starting to make some progress. They're mm-hmm. doing the right things. They're investing in housing. But um, they've exited many people to housing more than they ever had before. But it's really a math problem. You need to exit more people. Um, than the people who are coming into homelessness to really reduce it. And that prevention piece is, I think, uh, you know, solved in the broader affordable housing um, system, but also there's some emergency prevention that we could do more on. And, you know, L.A., I mean, yeah, we're, we're eventually going to get get back to Trump. But I think, you know, I, I think this is important because L.A. has become, I think, a real cautionary tale for progressive-minded people around housing issues precisely because LA has been willing to fund things, right? So they they put a lot of money into, into homelessness services. They've also put a lot of money, this is a whole different topic, but it's related, into mass transit construction, right? So they've built out this incredible uh, investments in LA Metro, right? So these are like the kinds of things that I think progressives would like to say if this, like, this is what we want to do for America, right? Like, we want to, like, build great things. Uh, but their their transit ridership is down and their homelessness is up. And that's because you can't build houses for people, right? So if, if you could build apartment buildings near these metro lines, people would ride them and people would be able to afford them. Yeah, and it'd be a twofer. <laughs> exactly. And and your subsidies, right? Like this is like low income people would much rather right you, you want a situation in which like you can you can take a housing voucher, you can go on the rental market, you can find an apartment to live in, you maybe can ride the bus or ride the train if you can't afford a car. Like that's that's the point of providing social services. But if you don't have like a houses, then you you get nothing. Yeah. And I mean I think what you're describing is sort of, you know, ideal urban policy, which is transit-oriented development, developing um, housing, not only affordable, but all housing around metro stations. Right. And so instead you've seen, uh, I mean, they've started to have problems that are are clearly in public view, right? A lot of, um, you know, people on the streets, sort of encampments, uh, trash problems, rat problems. And it, I mean, it's bad. It's a humanitarian tragedy. But it also undermines, I think, the whole sort of political paradigm. Yeah, I I really worry, actually, about that, Um, the point you're raising, which is that I think a lot of the progressives up and down the West Coast have actually voted to um, pour money into this issue. And I think a lot of the leaders have focused on the right solutions, but the results aren't happening fast enough. And so I think when people are walking down the street and they still see people who are uh, living on the street, going to the bathroom, living in a tent, they're frustrated, right? There is like both the compassion. Mm -hmm. But then there's also like, why is someone sleeping on my sidewalk? Right. Um, Which is, you know, a practical concern. Um, Especially if you remember the ballot initiative 
just That's passed. right. You said, I voted. I now am paying more taxes. Um, and I want this to be solved. Um, I demand for this to be solved. And I worry a little bit about a tax revolt on that front, which is to say, like, if there isn't enough progress shown that some of the generosity that progressives and um, compassionate people have shown, that that's going to decrease. And that's another thing that I, I mean, I think this sort of uh, criminalization policing, it's very easy. I think it could be a very easy shift from, hey, we're doing housing-based solutions that are supported by the evidence to, no, we just want these people to be gone and we're going to lock them up. Yeah, let's let's take another break and then, and then we're going to talk about this. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. So I think this is exactly the fear, right? We we had previously, a, I think, like a, a virtuous circle where we had a new idea. We had implementation of the idea initially by Republicans and continuing under Democrats. It cost money, but it was seen as cost effective and it was seen as working. And there was not a ton of public attention to homelessness. But when you had a story about it, I've, I've written stories, I've read them in The New Yorker, The Atlantic. They, they were usually these like happy stories that like, oh, here's these good programs. So if you thought about it, it would be to say, well, my city should do this too. If you were like a smart mayor who wanted to have a good reputation, you would look at this stuff and say, oh, we can do that too. And you could make the case at the ballot box for, well, we should fund this because we have ideas that really work and people want to be humane. And it's, I mean, it's an interesting mix because it's a, you know, sort of human welfare issue, but it's also a public nuisance issue. So if there's a solution that is humane, but also resolves the nuisance, like people want to attack it. But then you get the sort of sliding downhill, right? If people feel like, well, we've spent a lot of money on this, but it's getting worse, that's when you get into, uh, it, it seemed to me we had this new White House report that was like, well, part of the problem is that, you know, life might be too cushy and we've got to call out the cops. Yeah. I mean, I think the White House report says a f quite a few things. Um, one of them is, you know, one of them, which I agree with, is that um, homelessness is related to the housing market, yes. right? So that's an important point that I think not everyone actually takes home. I think a lot of people, you know, uh, when I'm on airplanes and people ask me what I do for a living and I tell them, well, I study homelessness and solutions to homelessness. And then I get an earful of, you know, what they think are the solutions. Housing isn't usually one of them. Yes, yes. Um, 
Um, and so, you know, I think there is this like sort of disconnect around, you know, what are the fundamental drivers of homelessness? So I really do appreciate in the White House report that there is this focus on the housing market. Mm-hmm. But there's also this idea that, well, people, the weather is good in California. And also, you know, if shelters are really nice, then people are going to become homeless. I don't think that's true. And I don't think the data really bear it out. Um, and I think, you know, when you think about the housing market, we need real broader solutions. And one of them is more housing subsidies. Mm-hmm. And that is something that is completely under the purview of the administration to propose more housing assistance. And like you said earlier, there hasn't been any in- administration or Congress that is actually really fully funded right. and invested in housing. So that's one of the things the president could do, which is um, provide more housing assistance and propose that to Congress. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's been interesting but frustrating to me as somebody who's who's written about, about zoning and, and land use issues for a long time to see the Trump administration both pick up these points about supply constraints and regulation, but also use it almost exclusively as a reason to not do affordability programs rather than as a way to, like, try to change the land use practices. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an all of the above. Um, So, you know, we obviously need to, you know, there is some room for regulatory reform, Mm -hmm. I think. You know, exclusionary zoning is not a good thing Mm -hmm. for affordable housing development. Um, if you can't build an apartment if it's not legal, then you can't solve homelessness. Right. Um, so that is a big part of it. I think the fear when um, there aren't any specifics right. um, that deregulation is just uh, rhetoric. And I think the fear is um, that, you know, there's going to be uh, gone wild, the, you know, the housing market, deregulate the housing market, no tenant protections, mm-hmm. um, no anti-discrimination ordinances. All of those things that actually help um, decrease homelessness, I think that's the real fear. So we have to know more about, like, what does deregulation mean? You know, there is a lot of there are a lot of things that we could be doing around land use and zoning. And I I think probably you and I would agree on those things. But I think the the other thing is, is when we're talking about really poor people, we're not only talking about land use and zoning and regulatory reform. We're also talking about housing assistance. Right. Well, and also the the, the proximate zoning problem is directly related to the assistance, right? That it's, you know, you have programs to build affordable housing that both need more money and they need greater ease actually locating the projects. That's right. right. And if you have a market that is producing more housing because of land use and zoning reforms, you can stretch your subsidy dollars mm-hmm. further, right? right? So that makes the housing assistance more valuable. Right. But you do see, I mean, we had we had Jenny Schutz on the show and, you know, there, there are more and less expensive markets in America, but there's no market in America where low-income people at the bottom end of the labor market are able to afford houses without subsidy and assistance. Um, it's just... Like everything else, healthcare, you know, college, high school, right? Like the, we, you have to have services for for people um, who are who are in the low wage market. Um, but so, what about the idea of criminalization? Because I, I think this is where a lot of people, when when they pull out of the sort of like happy Wonkland story, this is where people's heads start going. That like I don't want to see this tent in this public space, this guy sleeping on this bench, like, can't the cops do something about this? 
Yeah. So, I mean, cr- let me first start by just defining sort of what I mean by criminalization. That's a good idea. Right. So, um, criminalization of homelessness is usually thought of as um, behaviors that you and I do at home, right? So, sleeping, sitting, resting, eating, going to the bathroom. All of those behaviors people who experience homelessness have to do outside. Mm-hmm. They have to do in public spaces. And that's really outlawing those behaviors. Um, so, people are doing, you know, those engaging those activities, sleeping on the street, um, sheltering themselves in tents because they have nowhere else to go. Um, and often what happens, and this is actually on the rise in communities across the country, is that um, one way to address it, um, which doesn't resolve the issue, but one way to address that is um, to have the police issue citations, arrest people, put them in jail, um, and really criminalize those activities. Mm-hmm. Um, and the courts recently have ruled that it's actually illegal to do that. Hmm. So there is a recent case, Martin Voice versus um, Boise. Um, they found that uh, it's cruel and unusual punishment to say if you have people who are homeless and you don't have any shelter or you don't have affordable housing, that you can't arrest them for being poor right. or for being homeless. And I think that is going to be interesting to watch. As a recent case, I think mm-hmm. it's being appealed. There's some hope that uh, the Supreme Court will take it up. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, the um, L.A. County Board of Supervisors just signed on to it to actually urge the Supreme Court to uh, take it on because they want to move towards a little bit more criminalization. And I think there's actually really good examples of um, the criminal justice system working in collaboration with housing mm-hmm. and homeless providers. So um, we work closely in Denver with uh, the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless and mm-hmm. the Mental Health Center of Denver. Um, and they have a program there which focuses on people who are chronically homeless and who are cycling in and out of jail. You know, they're living mm-hmm. on the street, mm-hmm. they're getting in trouble, there's a lot of nuisance crimes, they're panhandling, they may be publicly drinking, mm-hmm. and the police are kind of cycling them in and out of those emergency systems. And this program actually says, okay, when you get arrested, we're going to offer you supportive housing. Mm-hmm. And what we're finding is that there's really high take-up rates mm-hmm. um, if you can find people. Um, and then there are um, really high rates of housing stability. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, the correction system, police actually like it because they are like, great, there's something sure. for us to offer and something to do. And, you know, just scaling those programs, there's actually a program very similar in L.A. called Just in Reach. Um, the problem is, is we just don't have the scale. Um, and that is a lot about developing those supportive housing units. Right. And so so this is sort of the the idea of, you know, th- there's a difference between saying, um, okay, like, you, you can't be doing this, so here's what, like, we want you to do, and, like, just, well, you can't be doing this. That's right. right. Like, it's, it's, you're too poor, and that's illegal, right? So I guess if you have a city that does not have, like, acute systemic, like, affordability problem, Right. Then this seems like something you should be able to to do. Right. I mean, I, I don't I don't know that much about the housing market in Boise, um, but it, it seems pretty cheap. Right. And so then you, you should be able to say there, OK, look, we have like chronic cases, people with serious problems, people who we are running through the jail system, which is costly, not really what police want to be doing with their time. So like what what do they need to invest in there? 
Yeah, I mean, I think for those, um, you know, special populations, which I just want to underline that they're a small share Mm -hmm. of the homeless population, um, that they should be doing what cities like Denver are doing, which is investing in supportive housing, using housing first to help people um, come in off the streets and then engaging them in voluntary services. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that takes money. It takes investment. um, It takes a little bit of time and it takes political leadership to make the right choices. Mm -hmm. And do we see you know, has the, the current administration, like, done anything useful with, with regard to, to these kinds of services and policies? I've been a little confused by the, like, sudden spike in, in interest here from President Trump. Uh, like, like what's, what's actually going on? Yeah, I, I don't think we know yet. Um, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I think that, you know, there is some anticipation that there may be some recommendations from uh-huh. the Trump administration. I think there are a lot of concerns and worries that— Things that work like Housing First and Supportive Housing um, will be um, ignored and the evidence will be ignored and that things like policing and criminalization, which we know from history doesn't really work, will be taken up. Right. I mean, it it sounds like the president, at least personally, is inclined to sort of recycle like what what I remember from, from when I was a kid, sort of like Giuliani era. Um, like if you just kind of get tough on people, like I, I don't know what exactly that the yeah, thinking is. Yeah, if you get is. tough on people, we have more people in jail and prison. Right. Or, you know, I mean, I, in some ways, realistically, maybe you just even push them into some other neighborhood. That's right. right that you don't care yeah, about Some as other much. bridge or, um, you know, moving on down the road. And then eventually people may come back or that becomes a problem in some other hotspot area. Right. And you, and you just kind of cycle around and you don't have anybody. I mean, because some of this, right, is like you, you ideally want to have like all your different services sort of at their their highest and best uses, right? Like there are problems that only the police can handle, right? Uh, and and you want them doing that work. That's like right. Not hassling people who need a place to sleep, right? Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think people, I mean, the police themselves don't want to be spending their time doing that. And I think we want the police actually policing criminals and making sure we are living in safe communities. Okay, so if you were to just do like like dream world, like federal federal policy, right? Like what 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 do we do? You do um, universal housing vouchers. Universal housing vouchers. So that's like, th- this is like take Section 8 given an entitlement program structure. Yeah, that's right. Only about one in five people who are eligible for housing vouchers um, actually get them. Mm-hmm. So we know there's really long lines at housing authorities across the country, and uh, 80% of people who qualify don't get it. So, yeah, a universal housing program would and be the best prevention. Some of the presidential candidates have proposed that. That is right. And there's some pretty bold plans. I mean, there's um, both a mix of adopting universal housing vouchers as well as doing something similar through a renter's credit. Mm-hmm, right. So that's so so is Kamala Harris has and this Booker. structured as, as and, and Booker as a, as a renter tax credit. And um, Castro uh, has a little bit of both. Yeah. And uh, did somebody else do do vouchers? I don't remember. Uh, it's hard to keep track. It, I will say it's the first time in my lifetime where the presidential candidates are talking about housing and are sharing bold proposals. Uh-huh, so that uh-huh. is super exciting. Um, I never thought I would say, it, you know, I'm having trouble keeping track of all of these proposals. <laughs> so that's just a good problem sure. to have. An exciting time to be alive. Uh, so I, 
Anything else that you would you would like to see from a from a federal approach? Um, I would like to see more investment in in homelessness prevention. So, mm-hmm. I mean, universal housing vouchers actually would take care of it. I think that's a political you know, that would be really exciting. Sure. Um, but you know, absent that, we need um, investment in you know broader affordable housing pro- programs, national housing trust fund, making sure we have enough production, um, preservation, but also that we are um, testing out strategies for homelessness and eviction prevention. Mm-hmm. Um, so there isn't enough money, I think, and enough knowledge actually in this area. We know a little bit um, about how to offer emergency assistance. We know that if we give people cash, that they will not end up homeless. Mm-hmm. It's great. Um, I think the challenge is, is trying to figure out in the big pool of people who are at risk, um, who actually is going to need help. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's a lot of vulnerable people out there who are paying too much for rent. You know, they're paying 40, 50, 60, sometimes 70 or 80 percent of their mm-hmm. incomes towards rent. That mean, that leaves them really vulnerable to homelessness. It also means they're, um, you know, giving up other critical uh, needs, uh, health care, food. Um, and so, you know, really figuring out how to target um, uh, prevention resources mm-hmm. and, and also preventing eviction, um, which, you know, is a is a really big issue as well. Yeah. So is there anything on the sort of regulatory tenant protection front that that you think like like really works is like a, like like what are the what, what are the really strong ideas on that front? Because, I mean, I know a lot of people read Matthew Desmond's book and they like get fired Great up book. about this. Yeah. Uh, but then it's like, well, like, what are you going to do? Right. Because it's like the rule can't be like, well, nobody is ever going to be evicted if they don't pay their rent. I think obviously. Right. So then the question is like, well, what kind of protection can you put on that like actually makes sense? And in particular, something I think people are not always fully cognizant of, but you don't want to make it impossible for people who need a new place to live to get a lease, right? That if you create a situation where the tenant protections are so strong that somebody with a spotty income history can't can't get a place to live in the first place, like that's not going to really help. Yeah, I mean, and it certainly makes it um, landlords think twice about renting to lower income people. I mean, so it is a tricky balance in thinking about some of the work that's going on as a result of Matt Desmond's book and really focusing on evictions, um, guaranteeing legal assistance and legal counsel and eviction courts, providing some emergency assistance in those courts. Mm-hmm. You know, you may be able to negotiate with the landlord and pay that back rent or mm-hmm. at least prevent the eviction filing so when the person moves on to the next apartment that they don't have that history, which mm-hmm. might preclude them because it's a little bit of a death spiral there. And like if you have an eviction history and you're going to find an apartment, most landlords are thinking, well, I'm not going to rent to this person. Um, And that kind of makes business sense, right? Right. Um, And so, you know, there's a lot of mediation going on in, I think, eviction courts and housing courts. I think the question is, is how do we swim further upstream and and really try to figure out how to actually even prevent people from falling behind, Mm -hmm. how to help people who are really vulnerable. And I think there's some interesting work going on around using data to um, actually look at where are the places where eviction filings are coming from Mm -hmm. and using that kind of geography um, to target resources, cash assistance. Because like Mm -hmm. I said, it's like this huge pool of people who are at risk um, and figuring out who you know, you can inoculate the whole group and prevent it, which right. is a universal housing voucher strategy. Right. I'm all for that. Uh-huh. 
Or you can try to use a more precision instrument. And right. like the data are not that robust. Um, and so it's very difficult. And not, not only that, but, you know, emergency situations are often unpredictable, sure. right? You know, you have like a health problem, your partner leaves you, or, you know, there's a domestic violence situation. A lot of those things happen or on an emergency basis. And so trying to figure out how to target um, people using data, and I think that's around like where are the evictions coming from? Where are people entering shelter from? There's some actually pretty good evidence that using geographic targeting um, could be uh, one one way to do that. Yeah, so that way is actually the last thing I wanted to ask is like, what do we know about? Obviously, it, it's a big country. Every story is unique, but like, what are the main sorts of life events that happen that that lead people into a, a situation where, where they're experiencing homelessness? Like, what's a what's a kind of typical you know? problem scenario. Yeah. I mean, I think that there are a lot of reasons why mm -hmm. people become homeless and particularly emergency situations. So a lot, you know, losing a job, mm -hmm. um, a health problem or mm -hmm. a medical emergency, or even just really falling behind on medical bills. Mm -hmm. um, uh Breaking up of families, so often two, you know, income households, that is a much stronger uh, from the perspective of being mm -hmm. able to pay the rent than, you know, a one-person uh, household. So all of those things certainly contribute domestic violence and people fleeing domestic violence mm -hmm. and living in untenable situations. That's a part of the story. I mean, it's really hard to really understand, like, the immediate event that mm -hmm. precipitated because often where we collect our data is in the shelter, but people... When they are um, experiencing housing stability, shelter is actually the last place that they end up. Right. You know, they don't go first to the emergency shelter. They, like, go to their sister's house and they stay there on the couch for a while. They may, um, you know, uh, try to find a short-term motel. So there's, like, lots of stops along the way in terms of housing instability before you get to that last resort of coming into an emergency shelter. Right. So so it's sort of it's difficult to to track exactly what the original like destabilization is because you won't you you, you won't see people just like moving out of a two bedroom apartment like right into the shelter. Yeah, not usually. And I mean, I think it's just really important to note that um, if you're poor in America, you face you know, just so many challenges, persistent mm -hmm. challenges that may, um, you know, I may be able to handle as mm -hmm. a, you know, a higher income person, but that could turn, um, you know, really spiral for people who who are persistently poor. Mm -hmm. And I think and I think a lot of middle class people underestimate the amount of routine housing instability in low income families. Right. Yeah, so they do. even if there is no span of homelessness in there, it's just a typical situation is to be moving a lot. That's right. Right. That is absolutely and right. And so then there, there's like a lot of cracks that you might fall into. Yeah, and we don't have a lot of good data on that. I mean, we know, you know, the measures of housing insecurity that we look at, we look at rent cost burden, so mm -hmm. people paying too much for the rent. Mm -hmm. We look at overcrowding. We look at um, housing quality, but like the sort of doubling up, um, the moving around, you know, we don't have great data. And often that data actually is not for one person. So yes. you're not following someone over time. You're just like taking different snapshots. So really understanding those patterns of residential instability are not entirely clear. Right, right. Okay, so thank you very much. Uh, before I let you go, I, I always like to ask people, uh, what, what what should I have asked you about? What, what do we miss here that's important? 
Yeah. So I would just say, you know, this. let me get on my soapbox for just one minute, which is to say, I think that people underestimate the power of housing and housing stability, housing opportunities. You know, it really is um, inextricably linked to your opportunities in life, right? So Mm -hmm. if you don't have stable housing, it's really hard to go to school every day, do your homework um, and uh, do well in school. It's hard to keep a job. It's hard to, you know, move up. And so housing stability is really a prerequisite for economic mobility. Um, And so I really want to encourage people to think about housing as an investment in a longer term strategy where you really want to help people access opportunity. All right. Mary Cunningham, Urban Institute, thank you so much. Uh, Everybody who's listening, we are doing a a survey here at the Vox Media Podcast Network. If you go to voxmedia.com slash pod survey, we would love to hear what you have to say about us and all of our many shows here. Uh, So thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks again, Mary. And thanks, as always, to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. And The Weeds will return on Tuesday. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com.